Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Syme. She is Research Associate at the Faculty of Behavioral and Movement Sciences at Vrij Universiteit Amsterdam. And today we're going to talk about uh, mental disorders from an anthropological perspective, focusing mostly on suicidal behavior. So Dr. Syme, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, Ricardo. Thank you for having me. Okay, great. So, uh, I mean, this is interesting that we're going to talk about mental disorders from an anthropological perspective, because it seems that it isn't the case that people across different societies and cultures think about mental disorders in the same way, right? Yes, that's right. Um, so, mental disorders are a product of you know, uh, Western uh, medical, the Western medical paradigm. So, um, yeah, you wouldn't expect them to exist in other cultures necessarily. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, but, but are there other cultures that also have a concept that is similar to mental disorder? Um, so there's obviously variation across cultures. So many cultures have words for madness, madness, being crazy, something we'd probably tend to associate with psych psychosis, um, having psychotic episodes, um, which overlaps, but is not um, the same as schizophrenia or, um, you know, maybe more extreme like bipolar syndromes. Um, but, you know, some people, you know, there are words for, um, you know, different aspects of depression, things that we call depression or uh, grief or, um, you know, reactions to stressful life events, but those, you know, the word depression doesn't actually directly translate into most languages because it's a direct consequence of um, uh, actually Western philosophy um, and the writings of Hippocrates. Um, and so when we look across cultures, we actually find that rather than having this sort of general abstract concept of depression that's, that's extracted from life events. Um, so the DSM doesn't include anything about, you know, what caused the depression, except for, you know, the fact that it used to, if you were suffering grief, you d it didn't apply to you, although that has changed. Um, in other languages, um, there are terms for, uh, you know, you might talk about lassitude or withdrawal or, um, you know, having suicidal thoughts but they're associated with specific relationships or specific social interactions and not with this sort of more abstracted general concept of depression that occurs inside of individuals. Mm -hmm. But people who exhibit these kinds of behaviors that in the West we would classify as some sort of mental disorder, I mean, uh, do they have some social stigma associated with them in other cultures, particularly the more traditional ones, for, for example, hunter-gatherers and so on? Yeah. Um, so again, there's quite a bit of variation. So Roy Richard Grinker is an anthropologist and he's looked at, um, he actually has two really great examples. It's also hard to assess this across cultures because it tends to be rare. And so it would be hard to have a, like a, a research team assess enough individuals across, you know, small scale societies to get the numbers we'd need to do that kind of um, like testing. But um, there are great anecdotal examples. And that's often what we have from the ethnographic record are our, our, our case studies. 
Um, so among the Johansi, the, or also known as the San or Kung of, um, of the Kalahari Desert, they, uh, he discussed two individuals, one individual who is exhibiting psychosis and likely has, was actually diagnosed by medical personnel as having schizophrenia and was receiving treatment for that. Um, so he actually wasn't stigmatized by his local community, although they were wary about him, you know, because he was, you know, he would exhibit sort of frightening, aggressive behaviors at times. But it was never, you know, a, a moral issue or like there's something wrong with him. They actually thought it was because of sorcery that because somebody is actually the fault of somebody else. So somebody in his uh, camp offended somebody in another camp. Somebody in that other camp had sent, you know, a, sor a sorcery attack and the spirits fell inside of him. And now he has, you know, he has madness. And the spirits, you know, talk to him sometimes. Um, and so it has nothing to do with him as an individual. It's not the same way we think about stigma in our culture. Um, so he was getting treatment, you know, pharmaceutical treatment. And he was also, but he was also married and had children and was still integrated in that society, um, which is obviously different than what you might see in a lot of urban settings where those people are homeless or institutionalized. Um, and another example he gives is somebody is like a younger man who is exhibiting what is probably autism, but high functioning autism. And he's sort of peculiar and he gets teased, but he's not stigmatized in any way. Um, he's a, he's a fully functioning member of the group. Um, so yes, they recognize that he's, he's weird. He's peculiar, but not that he's, uh, diseased. And so, yeah, the disease concepts of the concept of pathology doesn't really doesn't apply in either case. Mm -hmm. Does it have something to do with the fact that perhaps in some of these societies there are certain roles that can be uh, occupied by these sort of people? I don't know. For example, one thing that comes to mind is that people who would suffer from things like schizophrenia could be shamans, for example. Yeah, so it's hard to say because in many contexts, you know, so psychosis is a continuum. So people who don't have schizophrenia can experience psychosis um, to, you know, to greater or lesser extent or to have fewer or more episodes. Um, and then there's full-blown schizophrenia, which is it's, it's chronic reoccurring psychosis. Um, so even people who have like PTSD or stress reactions, you know, depending on what terminology you prefer, um, they can also have episodes that look like psychosis. Um, and so there is uh, some, because also in a lot of cultures, they value uh, vision quests or the visionary experience, which to some, you know, the naive psychiatrist might want to call that psychosis. Um, it's not, though. It's actually intentionally induced uh, hallucinations through like fasting and drug use and other and trance states. Um, so there is some overlap. So we don't want to confuse, you know, these sort of visionary experiences with psychosis, although there is, you know, it's really ambiguous and fuzzy. Um, and also people with severe schizophrenia um, really suffer in, in social relationships. Now, this can be exacerbated because of circumstances of the modern world where people are more out on their own rather than being integrated into a social group. Um, there are a lot of people who vehemently say that 
no schizophrenia, they would not have been shamans. Like that's, you know, you're romanticizing schizophrenia because it really has uh, horrible consequences for people. And they actually have, they suffer from, um, you know, interpersonal, um, you know, deficits. And actually um, in small scale societies, shamans often function, they're, they're typically knowledgeable and they often serve a role um, in sol resolving conflicts. So you'd have to have pretty good interpersonal skills. Um, so, so it's hard to say. There could be, you know, maybe, um, but I think the evidence suggests no, and it's probably a confusion between these more like visionary trance-like trans states and, uh, you know, uh, schizophrenia and the, the deficits that come with it. Mm -hmm. Can we say then that the concept of mental disorder is a cultural construct? You know, that's a, an interesting question because to some extent, you know, um, all, you know, everything is a culture. You can say anything is a cultural construct because it's based on, you know, language and communication. Um, so biology itself is like a, a cultural construct because we gain that knowledge through our, the educational system we, get, we transmit that knowledge through language. So yeah, all of medicine is cultural. You know, cancer is a cultural construct, but it's our, how well do they approximate the underlying reality and what can we do with those models of the world? And so it's just a model of the world that approximates reality, just like every other aspect of science, basically, and medicine. And so what the problem is, is that unlike other um, you know, disease states like cancer, like heart disease, we can't identify like an exact biological mechanism that we know is causal, that this is, you know, we can find differences in brain imaging technologies, for instance, in fMRI scans, but that does, but difference doesn't mean disease, right? Um, so really what we're talking about um, and looking at the history of mental illness as a construct is just behaviors that are undesirable and that have been medicalized. Um, and so a lot of what has been defined by psychiatry as a disease has been social deviance. Um, now, some of it, some of what is, is categorized as a mental disorder is perhaps a true disorder, meaning that it represents a dysfunction of an adaptation. Um, potentially the case with schizophrenia, that there are potentially some deficits in interpersonal cognitive function involved, so being able to understand the mental states of others. Um, there may be genuine deficits, um, so dysfunctioning adaptations, as opposed to just, you know, this is behavior we don't like. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, there are some states that are you know, like homosexuality, for instance, was, you know, for a long time, um, you know, considered a pathology. And it kind of, if you understand the context of American culture, where you're expected to grow up, reproduce, you know, mate and reproduce and have like the typical American family, you can kind of imagine, okay, I can see why in that context, you might see homosexuality as a kind of a dysfunction, because you're not wanting to do the thing everyone is expecting you to do. Um, and actually it took people who were themselves homosexual becoming psychologists and, and really making this an issue that it ended up being reversed. 
Um, so that shows how, you know, cultural values and, and sociocultural processes really play a role in how we define what is an illness. Mm -hmm. Could it be that some of the mental illnesses we classify as such in our modern industrialized societies, I mean, they simply correspond to behaviors that are not really uh, adapted to the kinds of conditions we live in uh, now? Yeah, um, so you, are you trying to get at the, like, the concept of mismatch? So in the, the way that we evolved, um, maybe our modern environment is so removed from the, the environment in which we are adapted that there, that new conditions are arising? Is that what you mean? Uh, no, not exactly. I, I was not talking exactly about evolutionary mismatch, but maybe, I mean, someone behaves in ways that doesn't allow them to function properly in our modern societies, and so then people, uh, mental health professionals, classify that uh, as mental, as some sort of mental illness. Yeah, so to some extent, um, you know, the values of a society which is rooted in, you know, to some extent their technology and their economy, um, if you go against that, if you don't fit into those val that value system and that economic system, um, whether you yourself are suffering from a disease, yeah, you might be classified, you might be stigmatized, identified as, as being problematic. Um, that can be, again, for because of genuine um, illnesses that you're not able to take part in the society, but also just because, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, if you're not, you know, uh, going back again to Roy Richard Grinker's work, he talks a lot about um, how in capitalism, if you're not an efficient worker, you can be seen as being, um, well, you're problematic, right? And that's actually how we identify ourselves is by, um, for better or worse, and, you know, whether we and I, this is something I actually try to actively fight against all the time, but it's hard when you're embedded in that sort of world not to define yourself by the products of your labor or as a laborer or as someone who does this, you know, to contribute to the economy or to science or to what have you. Um, and so that's actually pretty much all mental illness categories are involve people who are somehow not fitting in to that system. Um, depression in particular, in order to get um, people to, in order to get businesses to fund depression research, what they'll often do is talk about how much money is lost every year, which is in, you know, the billions of dollars, like $80 billion or something that people, that, um, that is lost because workers are either depressed and they're not showing up to work or they're showing up to work depressed and they're not being efficient workers. Um, but then when you look at it, you find, you really like when you dig into the data and you do research, you find that actually what people are reporting is that the reason they're depressed is because of bullying in the workplace, because they're not being compensated for the work that they're giving. Um, basically not being, you know, feeling exploited essentially. Um, as another example, um, it, there was actually a time during in the American Civil War period when uh, runaway slaves were, were categorized as being mentally ill because it was thought that, um, that you know, to justify enslavement, people would say, oh, that's just, you know, they would uh, classify it as like a race thing. Well, that, that's just because they're, 
a subordinate race and they're actually happier. They should be happier as slaves. And so, you know, so they have these arguments um, to convince themselves that they're, they're doing a good thing by having slavery. And then when slaves tried to run away, which, in, you know, nowadays, like, that makes sense, you know, <laughs> that you would try to escape. They have to now classify that as, well, that doesn't fit our model of how slaves should behave. So now we have to pathologize that. We have to say that that's a, identify that as something that we need to solve about that person, rather than looking to, say, the system, the social system or the economic system that is, that is just making people, you know, you know, naturally, not everyone's going to fit into an economic system for one re reason or another. Um, it could be because of certain aspects of personality or, um, you know, normal variation. Um, so we think about, um, you know, the, the classroom setting. Um, it's hard to imagine what ADHD or hyperactive attention disorder would be outside of a classroom setting or a work setting. Right. What would we even what would even the problem be, <laughs> you know, because when you look at uh, read ethnographies about hunter gatherer societies, um, they spend a lot of time, you know, um, now obviously you have to be able to, humans have to pay attention to their environment. Um, but it's hard to imagine what would be wrong when they're usually spending all day learning in playgroups and they're outside. Um, you know, why would it be a what would hyperactivity even look like without, you know, being in a classroom that's that structural setting and having a teacher, you know, trying to keep everybody in line? It's hard to say. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, but I mean, we can perhaps, perhaps people sometimes classify something, a cluster of behaviors as a mental illness to stigmatize people because they want to say basically that they are not adapted to the sorts of conditions we live in but uh, I mean nowadays also many times people want to attribute the the status of mental illness to a particular set of behaviors to try to elicit compassion for example yeah so that's the flip side of that so once you know you know it's interesting because you know once these categories exist are they so you can stigmatize them or maybe you can you know venerate them or you know which why people are concerned about like romanticizing schizophrenia um you can build compassion but there that could be paternalism you know it's still reinforcing that something is wrong um in some case when in some cases there really might not be something wrong or when, you know, in the case of schizophrenia, it looks like it really, um, like immigration and urbanization seems to really worsen symptoms. There's some evidence for that. Um, and so it's still putting it on, you know, the individual, that there's something wrong with them and not necessarily the context uh, and, and the wider, you know, social circumstances that are also contributing to, to that condition. Mm -hmm. So uh, perhaps we will get into the definitional aspects of, of this question, but uh, are, are mental disorders diseases? So, um, so I like to use Wakefield's harmful dysfunction concept, to, which is an illness concept, which is a way of defining disease, because to some extent, 
um, there's sort of two camps. There's the constructivist camp, which will say all diseases are, are simply constructs. And then there's more the naturalist camp, and they'll say, no, it's all diseases are truly biological. But um, Jerome Wakefield, he, you know, he recognizes both. And that's what I like about it, that um, to some extent, you know, deafness, for instance, or being blind. So these are adaptations that are clearly dysfunctioning, but you can create a world and we have pretty much created a world where you can be blind or be deaf and be full, a fully functioning member of society. So you can have that dysfunction, but it's not harmful to you because we've created a society um, where you can be a fully functioning member. Um, on the other hand, you can have like ADHD that might be harmful because you're not fitting into the society, um, but it's not a disease. Um, you can kind of compare it to cosmetic surgery. So maybe if you're in LA and you're part of a certain social sect and you, I don't know if you want to pursue, you know, acting or, you know, being a celebrity, you have to look a certain way. So you might feel like, you know, if your nose is too long or your ears are too big, you have to get surgery. Um, but again, that's maybe it's harmful, but there's nothing, there's no disease, right? So the harmful dysfunction concept is that there has to be a truly under a truly underlying dysfunction and it has to be harmful. So deafness, you know, in the modern, so it might classify in small scale societies where they, they're not able to build um, the sort of resources we have and the infrastructure that they can be fully integrated. So maybe in that context, it would be a disease because uh, it would have a, an impact on your survivability. But um, in a modern society, it wouldn't have to be a disease. So it's contextual. Um, and the same is true for uh, mental disorders. So, you know, ADHD is an example. Um, and depression is also, so if we think about, you know, it might be harmful uh, because you're not being a fully functioning member of your society. It's affecting your ability to generate income. But the evidence in this case actually points to it's not a dysfunction, it's an adaptation. Um, and so it would be wrong to to call it a disease um, and pro potentially exploitative. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, these might be genuine diseases. Um, uh, autism, if you're on the low, lower functioning, uh, that involves intellectual deficits. Um, that those could be genuine dysfunction, those could be genuine diseases. Mm -hmm. So uh, now talking specifically about suicidal behavior, what is the best way to understand it from an evolutionary perspective? Um, well, I think the, the first way to think about it, um, so, you know, when we talk about evolutionary, um, an evolutionary perspective, we really want to, you know, pinpoint adaptation. So what is, what might the adaptation be? And to do that, we actually have to look at the, the phenomenon and we have to really carve out what it is. So there's this tendency uh, to think about suicidality and think about suicide death, which is the most extreme form of suicidality. But most suicidal behaviors, most suicidality is actually non-fatal suicidal behavior which includes ideation, threats of suicide, and suicide attempts. Um, so, and this isn't an artifact 
uh, of modernization, actually, um, not an artifact of, um, you know, being near hospitals. Um, so, for instance, um, for women aged around 20, there are 100 suicide attempts for every one suicide death. In, uh, in Papua New Guinea, there's one society where the, uh, the anthropologists actually collected data on suicide attempts to suicide death. And it was like two to one and probably more um, because people actually, surprisingly, people often forget about suicide attempts and we can talk about why that might be. Um, but interestingly, in their minds, uh, the, I'm talking about the people in Papua New Guinea, they thought suicide death was more common because it's just, you know, that traumatic to a group when, if someone dies by suicide. Um, and so, but even in that context, they are in, they're, they're, they're not near medical facilities. Suicide attempts still outnumber suicide deaths. And so when we talk about using from an evolutionary perspective, um, we probably early theories about it have, and actually ongoing theories about it are probably misguided by focusing on the death aspect and not the, the ideational um, and the attempt aspect, because that's, you know, that's where suicidality really lies. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you said that, uh, what was it, uh, that people forget suicide attempts, were you only referring to people who attempt suicide or also the people around them? Um, so it seems like there's some research that shows that people would be admitted for suicide attempts and they'll like forget about it. But people will also just forget about like hospitalization. Like they'll forget when they were hospitalized for something. Um, and, and so one, and so I don't have any hard data on that. It's a really interesting, you know, phenomenon. It could be, so not to jump ahead, but you know, one thing, our data, our cross-cultural data shows that suicidality is very often preceded by conflict. Um, and so if those conflicts resolved and if those conflicts are forgotten, it could be that the suicide attempt is just forgotten because things are better now and, you know, they didn't, they don't revisit it in their minds. Mm -hmm. So, so um, suicide attempts are usually preceded by conflict? Yeah, and that's true. Um, so that's what we found um, in our... Uh, uh, in the human relations area files. So I collected every, um, me and Ed Hagen collected every case or cultural model of suicidality in the human relations area files. We limited data analysis to the probability samples, was to the probability sample, which is um, a stratified random sample of cultures. And um, yeah, it almost, it's, what is it, about 90 or more percent of cultures some kind of conflict was identified as preceding suicidality. Um, and then, you know, you go into even the Western layer. And so that's across random, stratified random sample of cultures, diverse cultures, um, cultures that don't typically make it into, you know, cross-national uh, data on suicide. Um, so it's things like, you know, loss of romantic relationships, forced marriage is a big one for women. Actually, we haven't published on this yet. Um, and I'm sort of just waiting for the opportunity to, but we found that for females, forced marriage 
was exclusively associated with females and loss of status was ex almost exclusively associated with males as the events that triggered suicidality. Mm -hmm. And do we know why, at least I think that's what the data indicate, why males tend to commit more acts of suicide or suicide attempts than females? So, so actually males, and this varies a little bit across societies. And again, this, this is not captured. So a lot of the cross-national data uh, is biased towards urban settings. Um, when you look across cultures, uh, especially small-scale cultures, um, so we find cross-nationally, uh, most suicide deaths are males. But actually, most suicide attempts are females. Okay. Yeah. And um, so actually, going back to those same uh, numbers in the U.S., so it was 100 to 1 for females about age 20. For males about age 20, it's 10 to 1. So there's 10 suicide attempts for every one suicide death. Right. But, but do we know why, where those differences come from? It's um, no, honestly. So, and it's interesting because, and so again, there's variation. So where I started doing field work in Micronesia, um, so suicide death, it's It's actually, so yes, there's already a male bias, but in Micronesia, which is a mat where they tend to be matrilineal and matrilocal. And females, mm -hmm. they don't have, men still have more power, but females also have quite a bit of power as well. Um, it's, yeah, like every, there's one female suicide death for 11. In the US, it's like two to one. It's, it's not that extreme, but, um, a place uh, I'm actually hoping to begin doing research with um, Turkish communities in the Netherlands, migrant communities, um, outside urban settings, most suicide death and most suicide attempts appear to be female. And so these differences appear to be related to the culture, social structures, um, conditions in their environment, but we really don't know. So it's an open question. So females tend to, you know, for females, it tends to be uh, things related to forced, you know, mating, forced sex, rape, forced marriage. That's what female suicidality tends to be associated with um, because, you know, it's a lack of choice in mating that affects female reproductive success. For males, their reproductive success is more constrained by status. And so it looks like, you know, so it's actually fitting, you know, the sex differences in suicide and what causes suicide actually fit with an evolutionary picture of what uh, constrains the reproductive success. Um, and so exactly what the social um, dynamics that cause, you know, you know, high rates of suicidality in females in one society, but it's males in another society, um, that's an open question. Do we know if uh, the the uh, the reasons people give to attempt suicide, of course, the ones who survive, uh, are similar to those kinds of causes that you're pointing to? Yeah. So it's 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 hard because there's not a lot of you know people are really reluctant to ask people those questions. 
So to do, um, you know, it would require doing like, you know, semi-structured interviews on suicide attempts. It's hard to recruit people for that kind of research. Um, I've been trying to do that for a couple of years. It's hard to even get it off the ground. It's hard to get ethics approval. Um, it's hard to, so I've been working with that Micronesian community for several years. And I started at asking about parent-child conflict, which in that society is linked to suicidality. But as an outsider, I can't just, or even as an insider, or just anybody, you know, you can't walk around being like asking people casually to talk about that, to take part in an interview, even if you're, you know, assure them that everything's confidential. Um, you know, people just aren't like jumping off their feet to do it. Um, and there's a lot of stigma tied to it too. Um, and so I'll be trying to do that, you know, in the next year, two years, uh, with the Turkish community and the Netherlands, you know, that's also going to be a challenge to just get people to even talk about that, to be willing to take part in, in that kind of interview. But there is some data, um, and I, and I know, and I know people who have done that research. Um, and so someone I'm, you know, uh, Diana Van Bergen, she's here in the Netherlands at the University of Groningen. She did interviews with migrants uh, from Morocco, India, and Turkey. And um, she, it's a, again, so it's a small sample size. Uh, I think, I don't think it was more than, you know, something like 20 interviews, 30 interviews, but in-depth interviews. Um, so common themes were entrapment, feeling powerless, feeling like you can't help yourself. So that should be true. We actually would expect that to be true for both men and women that you are genuinely powerless because you wouldn't resort to suicidality unless you really had no other choice. It wouldn't be like your first option, right? That makes no sense. Um, so whatever, you know, you would have to be like you, your, your absolute last resort. Um, so some of the examples that she found, um, uh, so for instance, uh, one woman was, um, actually two of them involved rape or at least two of them probably more involved rape not being believed and it was someone sort of in the actually both cases it was either a family member or uh, a brother-in-law and just people not taking the girl's side or just like you know blaming her and um so yeah that does fit with the picture i'm not, I'm not aware of anything that looks at um where they've done semi-structured interviews with males but from what I've seen, so, but they have done, um, I have seen some, um, you know, where they, they interview the family members afterwards. So the person had died, but they're interviewing the family members. So a psychological autopsy where they interview family members to try to find out what was going on in the mind of the person. Um, and yeah, it looks like things related to status. Um, so something uh, Diana Van Bergen has mentioned to me is when she's done some interviews with or psychological autopsies regarding male suicides, it's things, you know, related to status. They're not, um, maybe they, in the Netherlands, um, you know, around the age of 12, you're, you're, and this, maybe this is true. I think maybe it's true all throughout Europe. You're sort of set on a path of, okay, you're going to go to university. You're going to go to a technical school. You're going to, you know, be a laborer or something. And so people can be really uh, affected by where, where they end up falling into that system. And so she's reported that people that in that case, she's, you know, there are stories of males who maybe they were hoping to get one thing, but they ended up in sort of the, the lower status path. 
and and that was related to their suicidality. Um, in in Micronesia, um, it looks like, you know, so status can be, there are several ways men gain status. Um, one way is through being uh, competitive and aggressive. Another way is through, you know, education, um, you know, gaining status politically. And so, um, again, if they're not getting sort of investment from people, if they're feeling like they're not being valued to, to be on that path to having the status that they want, that seems to be related to some to some suicides there as well. Mm -hmm. But there are also individual differences in uh, in how much people are predisposed towards suicide. Right. Um, yeah, so there are. I mean, it's hard to say because you'd really have to look at people who were in the same situation. Because um, even not even it wouldn't even necessarily be like you're exposed to the same kind of adversity. Um, so maybe with depression that might work um, or PTSD. But with suicidality, so it, it's really about it's not just the adversity, but it's the powerlessness. It's the ability to escape the adversity. Um, it's the ability to rally others to help you to escape because, you know, in the West, we're typically we typically think of suicide as being responsible. I mean, individuals are responsible for themselves and people who are suicidal are also responsible for themselves. Um, we can sort of forget the fact that we are interconnected and we are, are nothing without you know, our social groups, our social networks. And we often do need help from others, either because we're being exploited by other people and we need someone else's help to get out of it, or maybe even the people who care about us are exploiting us and we're trying to communicate them that there's a conflict of interest, but they don't see it. And so, um, yeah, you'd have to, you, you'd have to look at people in the same kind of situation and then, you know, seeing what, what about their social network. So just because maybe two people were exposed to, you know, sexual assault, one of them was believed and they got help. And actually there is, I think, some data supporting this. Um, I think Randy Thornhill's work on, on rape actually supports this. Uh, maybe it was depression and not suicidality, but women who were um, believed and who got help and they didn't feel like they were under threat, they, their psychological well-being was better than those who weren't, not surprisingly. Um, so, so yeah, it's looking at multiple factors. Mm -hmm. So uh, pr probably you've already touched a little bit on this, but tell us about the bargaining model of suicidal behavior and also the inclusive fitness model. And perhaps I I'm not sure if the evidence supports one more than the other. Tell us about it. So the bargaining model, which I've sort of been touching on a little bit, is you're facing a fitness threat. And you are powerless to escape that. Um, and other, you're in conflict with others who, you know, they would help you, but they don't believe you or they don't recognize the conflict because maybe they think you have an incentive to lie or they have an incentive to exploit you, like as often the case of like, forced marriage, for instance. And so you need to send a signal that no, like, you know, a, a, a costly signal to say, you know, this is how much I, I value. So the one way to frame it is like, this is how much I value my circumstances. I don't value, like, it's like, I don't value it. Like I will, it's not worth being alive 
if you're going to force me to marry this person or if you're going to force me to be in these circumstances. Um, and then, you know, so in the case of a forced marriage, for instance, well, that should, people should re react, you know, people should be like, oh, okay, like we didn't, you know, we value, like you're a valuable member of our group. Um, obviously we're, we're going to, you know, they might've been benefiting from a marriage. So they obviously don't want you, they want you alive. And so um, it's sort of, you know, that's why it's called the bargaining model. Another way to put it would be like blackmail, but that sort of has a negative connotation. Um, but if you think about it strategically, it's not like, you know, manipulation in the, in the way it's often used, like you're just trying to exploit somebody. It's like, no, this is an honest signal of need um, that you have to send in order to not be exploited and to increase your fitness. And so it, uh, it's really an honest signal of how they perceive their own fitness. Mm -hmm. Right. And the inclusive fitness model. And so this was <clears throat> developed by Dennis DeCat and Zaro. And so, you know, we're all trying to improve, like, you know, that's the goal of evolution. You know, if you want to frame it that way, um, you know, increase your inclusive fitness. So the inclusive fitness model of suicidality is, is that um, your fitness would be increased if you actually had died because you are, according to this model, you have low reproductive potential, so you're not able to reproduce. And um, you are, you know, maybe you have some crippling disease or um, you're not able to contribute to a group so that, such that you are a genuine actual burden on the group. And so it would be, you'd actually increase your inclusive fitness by, through death. And there are cases of inclusive fitness um, in the animal kingdom. You know, we see that with um, certain uh, species of wasps and bees. So there are sterile casts um, who will sacrifice themselves for group defense. Um, it has to do with the unique uh, genetic makeup of those colonies. Um, there are also, you know, you think of like the black widow male spider, you know, he, after copulation, um, he's eaten and that, that's, that increases his fitness because he, those, that his calories, to, to the mother or, you know, go to the, the offspring. Um, it's not clear. I mean, it doesn't look like that is true in humans um, because we actually didn't find too much evidence for it in the ethnographic record, um, even in places where you would expect it or where they even have cultural models very similar to the inclusive fitness model. So in the Arctic, for instance, in, in many Arctic and subarctic populations, it's an extremely harsh environment. Um, it's not every man like pulls his own weight exactly, but you know you generally need to be like a contributing, functioning member um, because resources are scarce. And so they do have you know senilicide, so the, um, you know ritualized killing of older people um, who are no longer contributing, um, and sort of like a suicide. Of, of those individuals and it sort of varies by group um, how that looks. Um, but in those instances, it's often sort of a suicide homicide. It's, it's in many cases, you, the person actually has to say like, um, okay, like I will, you know, die now or whatever it is they say. Um, and once you say it, you can't go back. You know, it's like, it's, it's taken very seriously. Um, and oftentimes somebody close to you will have to, to do it. Like, so in one case it's like strangulation is sort of the method. 
Um, and it has to be someone close to you. And it's, it's an agreement. It's, you know, everyone, it's, it's highly regulated and ritualized. And so it's not just something you can do. Um, but that's not suicidality as we typically are talking about it. That's more of a, that's, that's homicide suicide. Um, and so if, if we did have this adaptation similar to wasps, similar to, you know, what we see in insects or arachnids, um, it's a mechanism that acts in a certain context and there's not this like, you know, this weird, <laughs> you know, it's, there's, you know, there's an event and it happens, but that's not what we see in humans. So it's not like they kill them. It's not even like they kill themselves. There's some like back and forth about even who, how that should happen. It varies how that should happen in these particular context in the Arctic and subarctic. Um, in other societies, you know, people who may be seen as a burden um, and who are not and who have low reproductive potential, they don't exhibit suicidality. They actually will coerce their kin into giving them like, they're like, no, you give me resources. <laughs> like, and it's like, oh, what would I be better off dead? And it's sort of framed like that, but it's, you know, it's actually coercive. It's like, well, you should give me resources. And we, we do see in societies that people will stop giving resources to older, elderly, you know, because life is, life is harsh. And so when someone is sick and older, sometimes they will just sort of slowly relinquish resources um, sort of quietly and not drawing attention to themselves or the situation. Um, and eventually the person will like slowly pass away. And then, um, you know, but that's also not, so that sort of goes against the inclusive fitness model, because if we have this adaptation, we wouldn't really be seeing that. We would be seeing death, you know, it, it doesn't, how does that benefit the group to slowly pass on, you know, it should be sort of a quick decision, right? Um, so it just doesn't look like there's a mechanism for suicide death when an individual is, has low reproductive potential and is, you know, not contributing to the group. Um, the other thing about that is, and so one, on the surface, it seems like, oh, okay, well, suicide death tends to increase with age. We see that uh, cross nationally. Um, but it's not like as you get older, it's actually, um, I think it peaks for males sometimes in the 50s or 60s. So actually when their reproductive life is sort of on at the end, but they're not in their 80s and 90s when you'd expect like, you know, more health issues, for instance. Um, but the cross-national data doesn't reflect, you know, data in smaller societies that just don't, that data just doesn't make it into that, the cross-national data sets. So um, for Pacific Islanders, um, they, like in Micronesia, for instance, it's young men. It's men who are 15 to 25. In Turkey, it's, it's young women. So it's people, and actually, so setting aside suicide death and just talking about suicidal ideation and attempts, um, actually the data show it's young people. It's people who are 15 to 30 at the peak of their reproductive life. And, and so that does not make any sense at all from the inclusive fitness model perspective, because attempts should be associated with, you know, 
And also just the, the fact that people are so bad at killing themselves, which is a weird thing to say, but it just looks like that's a very difficult, um, you know, that self-preservation is not something humans overcome. And in fact, in many instances, it looks like when people do die by suicide, it's because of, um, it seems so stochastic, first of all. So there's some randomness involved, perhaps related to, um, you know, the randomness of you have to send a signal with some probability of actual death. That's the signal. And so some people, because of the nature of that signal, it's a true risk. Some people will die. Um, and that's just a risk that people have to be willing to take if they perceive their fitness as being low. So there is going to be some stochasticity, we'd predict. It looks like firearms um, are associated with increased risk of suicide death. So not just, so actually they have like data in California, it came out I think last year. So just having a firearm, so even just like ruling out what the people who went out and bought a firearm in order to, to die by suicide, it, it seems that having a firearm increases your risk of suicide um, because it's a novel technology, it's highly lethal. And so, you know, our, our brains are just maybe not um, you know, you can make a, a snap impulsive judgment um, that can result in instantaneous death. Um, and that's not something that necessarily would have been around. Um, that technology wasn't around for most of human history. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on. But most of the time, <laughs> the vast majority of times. So, yeah, and I, even I have to remind myself, it's like, you know, you can think of like, well, what about people who jump in front of trains? What about people who... Um, no, there's lots of highly lethal methods, but the vast majority of time, the methods have, relative, have pretty low lethality. Mm -hmm. Do we have higher rates of suicide in modern industrialized societies than in traditional ones? Um, so it's hard to get um, good numbers on traditional societies, um, just because the longitudinal data isn't really there. Mm -hmm. Um, there'd be, have to be people kind of collecting that data year after year, and sometimes it's hard to access these societies. Um, there's, you know, not great record keeping. Um, in some parts of the world, um, it looks like in many places, many uh, uh, cultures in Papua New Guinea, they have extremely high suicide rates. Um, higher than, I think, what you would find in the U.S. Um, um, and high suicide attempt rates. But it's hard to say, and you'd also expect there'd probably be quite a bit of variation depending on, you know, the social dynamics of those societies, like who is likely to be powerless, um, what, are, what, what are the dynamics of power in those societies, what kind of threats do, social threats do people face. Um, so I don't know if we know I, I don't think we can really say whether they're higher or lower, but there does seem to be quite a bit of variation. Mm -hmm. And what about some specific countries like Japan? Because it seems that it has very high suicide rates, at least comparatively high. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say. Um, like Japan has really high rates, India, um, Greenland, um, where, where I work in Micronesia, they have pretty high rates. Um, and sometimes that's fluctuating too. And it's not always clear why. Um, so 
I wish I knew. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I did know why. Um, it's something sociologists, I mean, that's, you know, Emil Durkheim, he was trying to tackle that, um, you know, the, you know, he introduced the field of sociology with that very question. And, and people are still asking that question. Um, so there, you know, some people like Durkheim's work. I don't, I think there's something to it, you know, the, the idea that we're, some people are overly regulated by society. Some people aren't integrated enough into society. Um, you know, I think there is, I think we do see that. Um, because both of those can result in fitness threats. Um, so if you lack a social group, that is a fitness threat in and of itself. Um, you know, you need a group to help you find a mate. You need a group to help you raise your, your children. Um, and if you don't have that, that is a fitness threat. Um, if you're being overly controlled by your kin, which seems to be the case perhaps in East Asia, um, also in Pakistan and in much of the Muslim world where they seem to, on paper, they seem to have low rates of suicide, but that might not be true. Um, you know, so, you know, people are overly, they are forced to do things that don't benefit them because of conflicts of, you know, conflicts of interest between uh, family members, reproductive interests often. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I wish, I wish I could give you a better answer, but yeah, it's something we're still, people are still asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, can people resort to suicide as a form of apology? Um, so, uh, I came up with that idea, the suicide as a costly signal of apology, or suicidality as a costly signal of apology, because when we went through the ethnographic work, um, so Ed Hagen, he, uh, was my PhD advisor and he developed the bargaining model and originally applied it to depression, but then also applied it to, it actually, he was making sense of the, um, the ethnographic literature where it seems to be, you know, um, sending a signal to not be forced into a marriage or that you are in need of help. Um, and then the costly apology. So after I, you know, read all of the cases, um, I went to him and I was like, you know, I, I, we're finding evidence for the bargaining model, but there are these other cases that are sort of opposite. So from the bargain, the original formulation of the bargaining model, it's that the, the suicidal person is being harmed by others. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, where's the, where's the wrong, you might say. So they're being harmed by others and they need to communicate that they're being harmed. But in some examples, in a subset, it looked like the, the individual who was suicidal had done something wrong to others. So they had committed some kind of sin or crime or transgression that, you know, and then that did result in some sort of sanctions or punishment. And that didn't really fit with the original bargaining model, which uh, framed the suicidal person as more of a victim. In this case, in the other, in these examples, it looked like the, the suicidal person was more of a perpetrator. Um, and so it's really just a reformulation. Um, and also, like, why would a suicidal person, if they're being harmed by others, why would they feel shame and guilt? Uh, it didn't really fit. Um, and so uh, I developed the costly apology model to sort of make sense of that, to signal, um, you know, in situations where someone has committed a transgression that they can't directly compensate for. So if you steal someone's resources, you can compensate by giving them back or just replacing them. If you like accidentally like 
kill somebody, if you do something like you can't undo um, maybe a sexual transgression, you can't un something you can't undo, um, you might have to send a, a different type of signal. And we do see across societies that um, costly signals um, often involve non-transferable, it's not like a transferable good. So among the Ainu of Japan, for instance, um, someone will, they'll be forced to like shave their, their hair and beard if they did some kind of wrong. It's sort of like, you know, they have to live in some kind of shame for a little bit or some kind of like be stigmatized for a little bit. And then afterwards, you know, that makes up for their, their crime or sin. And so it's sort of, okay, applying that to, okay, suicidality. Maybe it's sending an honest signal of, you know, like I can't replace the goods, but like, I'm so like, this is how sorry I am um, that you're willing to take your own life because you, you find that life isn't, you know, worth living anymore without the group. And so, and then others can respond to that signal. Um, and so I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot because, um, you know, it's not really, so yes, it looks like it does happen. It sort of is like the question of, what does a, what does suicide mean? Like, what does suicidality mean? What does the signal mean to people? And so these slightly different contexts, it could produce, like maybe suicidality does mean different things, um, but, at, but really the bargaining model and the costly apology model are really the same. It's sending a signal of, you know, how much you value your circumstances um, and so in the context of feeling guilt or shame for something you've done for harm, harming others, people can recognize that as a, okay, that person is really sorry and maybe we can reintegrate them into the group. Um, uh, and then, you know, similar to, you know, saying I'm genuinely, I genuinely don't want to be involved in this forced marriage, people change their behavior. So it's really about sending a signal for how much you value your circumstances and then others uh, changing their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've talked a lot about uh, evolutionary approaches to suicide. Do you think that suicidologists in general uh, are lacking these kinds of tools that come from evolutionary theory in order to uh, understand suicide and perhaps also prevent it? Yeah, well, the field of uh, or the area of suicide prevention um, in the Western world is, is really politicized um, and not like in the like Republicans versus Democrats kind of political. It's like, um, like you just can't say certain things. So the bargaining model is like really not okay from, from those perspectives. Like you can't, you can't say that you have to, um, actually the media guidelines in fact say you can't talk about, and this is really crazy. You can't talk about the causes of suicide in public. Really? Yeah. I, I, it sounds like I'm making this up because it's so ridiculous, but, yeah. um, the American foundation of suicide prevention. So talking about like, um, LGBTQ youth, you can't say there's a pandemic of suicide among transgender youth or LGBTQ youth. Um, because maybe people identify with that and then feel like they have to, this is all speculation, by the way, I don't, the, the, there's no data to back this up. It's just speculation. Um, maybe people will identify with the suicide epidemic and then that'll cause them to behave, to, to self-harm or attempt suicide. Um, you also, like, you also can't link it to 
like specific events. You can't say it's caused. You, you're not allowed to say it's caused by one thing. Um, you have to say it's caused by a myriad of circumstances, including mental illness, which is entirely circular <laughs> because it's like a lot of, um, you know, suicidality is a symptom of mental illness. Um, but it's also caused by adversity as many mental illnesses are. And so, but you can't just, you know, so the whole, that's a, just an entirely circular thing to say that it's mental illness and not a rational response to circumstances or, um, you can't say that suicidality, suicide achieves goals, which is sort of what the, an evolutionary perspective is saying that it's, you know, it, it, cause it's not about the conscious, like this person is engaging in suicide to achieve X. It's, you know, much of it could very well be unconscious. Like many times people attempt suicide without like quite impulsively without even thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. It's just something is going on right in that moment. Um, and so the, the whole thing is ludicrous. So it's like in order to prevent suicide, we, we can't talk about what causes suicide, which is what it looks like. Um, and so that's just a mess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, um, yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, that, that's really weird. So how can we prevent suicide without talking about its causes? <laughs> At least um, for me, it seems contradictory, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so it's a really diverse field. And, and it's not that everyone who studies, so the people who study suicide, you know, her suicidologists or who study suicide are pretty diverse. Not everyone agrees with that, with, you know, the, those guidelines. Um, but obviously there's, you know, some powerful people do. There's perhaps a majority who do. Um, yeah, I don't know what people are. I mean, I think the other issue is, um, so that's one issue. Another issue is that we, because we're in the Western world, most of our data is coming from, I don't think they have read the um, Joe Henrik's like weird paper. <laughs> A lot of it comes from, a lot of the data comes from the Western world, urbanized settings. Um, so even if they're in non-Western setting, they tend to be urbanized settings. Um, there's not really a, an appreciation for, maybe they appreciate it, but it's not considered really valuable to have data from small scale societies. Maybe they think it's, you know, not very relevant to the modern world. Um, and another thing is that they're really interested you know, it's all framed in terms of the mind much of the time. I mean, so there's sociologists and actually my work, you know, on the bargaining model and these cross-cultural perspectives, it does overlap with some um, sociological perspectives, um, such as a work um, influenced by, I think his name is Ian Black. And it's, it's framing is quite different, um, but it's the gist, but if you kind of get past the the language and the terminology at the heart of it, it's really the same. It's about powerlessness and, and asymmetries and power and how people like can achieve ends. Um, and so there's a lot, it seems like there are some people who are kind of talking about the same thing, but they're in different fields or in different sorts of social sciences. Um, there are a lot of people who do talk about the, the social, the, the social circumstances of suicide. But uh, 
yeah, it just doesn't seem to, to influence because it's really the psychologists who, who rule suicidology. Um, like Thomas Joyner's work is really influential because it just fits with the way people have been thinking about suicide. Like when I told people I was doing research on suicide as an anthropologist, they were like, some people are like, why would you do that? You're an anthropologist. And I'm like, why? So like, I didn't really get what they meant. But yeah, there's this perception that suicidal behavior is caused by something going on in the person's brain, something in their mind, something internal to the person. And that it, it maybe it matters what's going on in the outside, but it's really what how they interpret and manage their own mind. That seems to be the general perspective uh, in psychology, as well as within the general public who sees suicide as a as an issue for psychologists to deal with. Because um, that's also like who you go to if you're if you are feeling suicidal or people or if your family member is you would send them to a psychologist or a psychiatrist you know a mind brain doctor um and it matters less you know it seems to matter less to people um what's going on in the social world and that could just be a bias of you know being westerners uh and being individualists mm -hmm. So I have here two or three more general questions. So uh, when it comes to mental disease in general uh, and looking at the relationship between mental health professionals and their patients, is there a power imbalance there? And if so, what are the kinds of implications that it would have? Yeah, well, there's certainly any um, sort of therapist, you know, whether they're like a counselor, clinical psychologist, or psychiatrist, um, there's absolutely an imbalance of power, no matter which like kind of field or school you're into, if you're a patient, you know, that's the doctor or specialist patient relationship. Um, there's absolutely an imbalance of power because the one person is believed to have be knowledgeable, has a certain skill set and a certain level of education. Um, and actually, maybe it varies. You know, maybe there are settings where a psychiatrist is working with a high-powered politician, and maybe the it's reversed. But I think the vast majority of the time, um, whoever that person is probably has more education than their patient, or you know, they they have the knowledge that the other person is trying to to extract from them to help them. So the patient is in need, and there's the specialist. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, now there are like some, and this is a some a body of work I hope to look into more because I haven't read too much on the like the counseling literature side, but there have um, in discussions with people who are counselors, you know, there are apparently therapists who believe that the power dynamic isn't real or that it can be easily overcome, which I think is really naive um, because you know when you and also like I've just talked to people who have just been really, um, you know, I guess they would call it invalidated <laughs> by, by that setting because um, they're trying to express their need, um, but the, it's not falling within a certain narrative that the counselor or the psychologist or the psychiatrist is willing to buy. And so they felt like, you know, they were overlooked or not understood. Um, so, you know, with regards to the fact that, well, psychiatrists are the ones 
you know, as a body, as a field, they develop the terminology that classifies mental illness, which is um, in our day and age, it's an identity to some people. Um, now, not everyone, you know, some people really take on like, I'm depressed or I'm autistic, I'm on the spectrum or I have ADHD. They really like own that, um, that they, I guess they try to take power back because it's still to some extent stigmatized. Um, and other people don't own that so much. Um, but recently, uh, there was a Twitter thread I thought was really interesting because I was like just perusing through it and it was sort of like talk about a negative experience in therapy because it's not all happiness and sunshine necessarily. And what I saw was uh, people were just having their, it was a negotiation for identity and validation. So there were a lot of people who were, um, they wanted to get that label, right? Maybe they thought they were ADHD and they wanted to get confirmation that they were, and they really had to push for that. Um, I think autism came up a lot. There were people who were really pushing like, no, I'm autistic. And they sort of had to convince people about what they were. Others, and that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting in and of itself because there's that sort of like subjectivity aspect to, you know, who, how can you tell if you're what? Cause it's all, it's all subjective. Um, um, what's up? Oh, gosh, there are other examples. Um, but yeah, negotiations for, or the other one was just having different therapists tell them that they have different, just low uh, agreement between different psychologists or psychiatrists about what condition that person has and getting prescribed different medications and having horrible side effects. Um, because like, um, antipsychotics, for instance, have can, you know, have really, you know, horrible drastics can, they can have really horrible drastic side effects. Um, you can gain weight, you can have metabolic disorder. Um, it can result in, in um, I think you're at an increased risk of heart attack. Um, you know, even antidepressants have, you know, undesirable side effects. So you have to weigh the costs and benefits. And so people who are going in feeling helpless and needing help in their lives, they're, and I, I guess from there, it seems like, wow, it's even more out of control because the, the people in power who are supposed to tell me who I am and, um, you know, are supposed to treat me can't even agree. And they're, I'm sort of getting these different medications and it's just, until, until, and eventually someone gives them a, a diagnosis that fits and a medication and a treatment program that fits. Um, so it's a really, I just find that, you know, that fascinating because, um, you know, I think maybe that's a new phenomenon because in the past, you know, people would say the psychiatrist, you would just trust what the psychiatrist says and accept his treatment. Whereas it seems like now it's a little bit more of a negotiation. So maybe people, patients are feeling more empowered to speak up for themselves. Um, so, uh, nevertheless, it's still the person writing prescriptions. It's the person who, you know, decides whether their condition is going to be reimbursed. Um, by their insurance, that, that's, you know, that the, the, the doctor, the specialist still has that power. Mm -hmm. And I guess that not only that, but mental health professionals also, at least to some extent, shape public discourse on how people think about these mental disorders and the culture that develops around them, right? Yeah. And so, you know, suicidality, depression, anxiety, 
because it looks like, especially for suicidality and depression, a lot of it, those conditions are are already associated with power asymmetries in which the person who's depressed or suicidal is lower in power. And, and so it's interesting because, you know, we're a society, you know, most people like power or they, they, they admire people who have power. Um, we still, maybe we think we, we stick up for the powerless, but generally we don't <laughs> because it's a lot easier. Most of the time, it's a lot easier to decide with the person who has power. Um, because they might harm you or it's just an uphill battle or, you know, you're, you have to swim against the stream, basically. That's where the might, um, the actual, like, real, there could be real world consequences to fighting against the system. Um, and so, you know, just for instance, the whole Me Too movement, it turned out a lot of these men in power were probably no surprise from any uh, evolutionary psychologist, they were <laughs> abusing their power. Um, to gain sexual access to women who were lower in power and maybe didn't feel like they could escape those situations. Um, that's one, and that is also one of the leading risk factors for suicidality and depression is that very power dynamic. Um, and so it's, you know, it's interesting that being this, these sort of low power strategies from an evolutionary perspective are diseases are classified as diseases according to psychiatry mm -hmm. so just one last question do you think then that uh, i mean we've been talking a lot about the anthropology of mental disorders do you think that uh, at least certain subfields of anthropology, like, for example, I don't know, biological anthropology, evolutionary anthropology, cultural anthropology, maybe can help us fight against uh, mental disorders, the, the ones that are most prevalent in modern industrialized societies? Yeah, well, uh, cultural anthropology is a great example because um, cultural anthropologists like to study the powerless. And I think a lot of times um, the marginal, the powerless, um, and a lot of times they end up writing about, um, you know, depression or suicidality or stress without even necessarily meaning to think about it in the, the DSM category sort of way. But when you work with different groups who are, um, so, you know, if you work in the Pacific Islands, for instance, um, because of the loss of culture and because of colonization, if you work there, you're going to come across, you know, substance abuse. You're going to come across um, behaviors that would be classified as a DSM category. Um, and so people can end up writing about those things um, without even realizing or consciously, you know, looking for them from the Western biomedical perspective. Um, so I think, yes, but I, and then of course the problem is, is that the people in the medical profession don't even know it's there because they don't know to look for it. Um, so I definitely think, yeah, I think it, um, cultural anthropologists, evolutionary psychiatrists, so evolutionary psychiatrists are different because they have, um, you know, the medical perspective, but maybe less so the cross-cultural perspective. Um, and so it is just about bridging these different fields um, and getting people to come together and say, um, to, to agree that this is something important and to work together 
um, to have like a short, uh, to come to a shared outlook. Um, and I do, I think that is happening. I think it's just happening very, very slowly, um, incrementally. Um, but I hope it continues down that, that way. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's end on that positive note. Just before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Um, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Kristen Syme. Um, dang, I still have to get my webpage up. That is on my to-do list. <laughs> Eventually I'll have a webpage. <laughs> but not at the moment. <laughs> Okay, so I will be leaving some links to your work in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Sim, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Of course. Thanks, Ricardo. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. So it is thanks to people like you that the show has been running for such a long time, more than three years now. And I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, hit the subscription button and comment on it. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Kenny Litzka, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Bosbo, Weingart, Becker, Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Walla Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliz, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.